Greetings, everyone. It is Thursday morning, about 9.45. I just got done teaching my biomedical ethics course for the morning. Um, we had a lively discussion about the ethics of placebos. I'm not going to talk about all that today. Just learning a lot and having a lot of fun with that one. Um, I did want to talk a bit about um, today. I want, to, I want to broach this question of perseverance in the moral life. Because a lot of the stuff that we've been writing about and talking about, particularly when it comes to obligation, obligation is hard. Obligation sometimes does not care about how you feel about it. That there are duties which are incumbent upon us that could really care less whether or not you feel like doing them. That when my uh, son woke up this morning and he has a really kind of nasty cough because he's been draining a ton, don't worry, he's not COVID positive. Um, but you know, it's real early. It's like just after six and I've woken up and I was working till probably almost 11 last night. And so I didn't sleep great. But when he, you know, when an obligation like that appears, there is, there is obviously reaching out in love to, you know, to aid my son, but there's also, it's, you know, this is my son. This is what you do as a parent. Um, it doesn't really care whether you're tired, doesn't care whether you need five more minutes to kind of collect your thoughts. The need is there, the obligation is present, and it's time to time to buckle in. So there comes a lot of um, there comes just a lot of fatigue and a lot of exhaustion with it. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about that this morning, and particularly this question of like perseverance. How is it that we keep going? in the midst of obligation. I think that there's one way of doing it that just completely burns us up and burns us out. So I want to suggest that, um, spoiler alert, I don't know that there's really any way out of that, that there is a lot of the moral life, which I think just comes entailed with, uh, with fatigue, with being tired, with being relatively unfulfilled when we fulfill our obligations and that there's not, there's not really a way around that. I'll say more about what a way forward might be in just a second, but let me go ahead and set it up. So the moral life as we've been discussing it for a while now is partly a matter of thinking. It's a matter of reasoning that I think most of us, and I've talked about this with respect to a lot of my students, kind of default into intuitionist thinking, that they have a sense or a feel that something is right or wrong, but they don't really have kind of the language or the or the ability to describe or to reason through in what ways it might be right or wrong. Um, what what about this might be just or unjust? They just don't have the they don't have quite a, that that more developed capacity just yet. But Anytime that we engage in the moral and like the act of moral reasoning, it's not just a, an act of pure reason, but is an, it's, it's giving ourselves over to something that requires us ultimately to participate in it. So it's not kind of engaging with some, with some question at arm's length um, in the abstract any more than when Elliot woke up this morning with this cough, you know, I my first inclination was simply to begin responding to what he needs rather than to spend a lot of time deliberating about it. Um, if I had spent all my time just deliberating as to the course of action and then remained at a remove analytically, 
I think that just tells me that I'm not a great parent because I'm meeting the need, but I'm not actually invested in, I'm not invested in myself in how we meet the need. That anytime that we spend time contemplating the moral life, it changes us. We become people who care about the thing that we think about. Um, we, when we contemplate a thing, it changes us in what we desire. It changes us in how we pay attention. It changes the plans that we begin to make, that the more you care about something like, um, the more you care about something like, say, the status of the unborn, it changes what you, it changes how you, how you read certain stories in the newspaper. It changes how you pay attention to the bodies of those around you. It changes the commitments and plans that you make. It changes a lot of, it It inevitably does. The more we pay attention to something, the more it changes us in our commitments, our desires, our attention. But here's the trick, that when we begin to move from just thinking about a thing when we begin to think about a thing, it causes us to care about a thing in some form or fashion. We begin to have, we begin to, uh, our, our, our desires change. All of us, like what we want and the way in which we order our lives begins to slowly and imperceptibly change. Sometimes it changes pretty radically. When you have a child, it changes all of your commitments um, it changes your plans pretty dramatically. I think that your desires kind of catch up after your plans change. So I don't know that there's like a right order to the changes that happen, whether it is your you, the practices that you do change first and then you begin your desires kind of catch up afterwards or your desires happen first. And then slowly that materializes into the way in which we live our lives. I think it's kind of, you know, there's there's good arguments on both sides. And I think it happens in a variety of ways. But however it happens, over time, you find that you really do care about this question. You care about this problem. And uh, that's all there is to it. So that care that you have for a problem will always have a, there will always be some sort of like disjuncture. There's always going to be a gap um, that your desires change about how you feel about it, but they're always going to be in some level unfulfilled desires. You're never going to be able to devote as much time to it. You're never going to be able to think about it as clearly. You're never going to be able to join with the one that you care about as much as you would like to care about them. There will always be a gap in our attentiveness that we want to pay attention to this thing that we have grown to care about. And we want to pay attention to it more and more but there'll always be the limits of distance and time and energy. There will always be a gap there. There will always be a gap when it comes to the plans that we make or the practices that we have, that we want to devote ourselves and order our lives more and more around this problem that we've grown to care about. But there are always holes in our time. There are always other things which make demands on our time, competing uh, goods which um, just throw a wrench in our ability to really practice care or attention as much as we want to. So there's always a gap. And that gap, I think, always stays with us. There is no overcoming it. There's no getting rid of it. It There is a an estrangement, dare I say, a kind of loneliness that comes with caring that is just an internal component. 
it will never go away. So if you find yourself, like I do a lot, um, feeling that sense of like that gappiness or that longing or that loneliness that emerges when you begin to care about something and you did, and you and you uh, move forward in the moral life, I think that's part of the deal. I don't think that there's anything to be done to overcome it or to get rid of it. I think that that longingness and that loneliness is just part of it. So a figure that I have turned to a whole lot over the years and just, just announced that um, I'm going to be writing a book on her sometime soon, soon-ish, after I get this current couple of current writing projects out of my life, then um, I'm going to turn to that, is this figure Dorothy Day. So um, you can go look up lots of stuff on Dorothy Day. There's lots of biographies about her. Um, she wrote a lot of, she wrote a few autobiographies, so that's probably a good place to start. And the best place is probably her book, The Long Loneliness, um, her autobiography. It's a good way kind of into understanding her own life and her own commitments and how she grew to care about a whole lot of things that ultimately um, came entangled with a lot of suffering at the same time. So she titles her book, her first autobiography, The Long Loneliness, because I think for this reason, that when we desire to live the moral life, it comes baked into it this sense of estrangement, this sense of loneliness that always goes with it. And it's that thing, it's loneliness that produces kind of, I think, one of the greatest obstacles to living the moral life. It would be far easier for us just to quit caring, to quit pursuing, and quit quit doing, and that maybe that loneliness would abate, maybe it would go away. So in the postscript to her second autobiography, The Long Loneliness, where she kind of lays out her life and what is she's given her, what she's given herself is to is. Um, she speaks to this a bit. So she says, um, let me find the specific site I was trying to find. Give me just one second. That was a was a really big uh, warm-up to something, and I'm going to have to find it. Just bear with me. Beauty of Google. Here we go. Okay. From Dorothy Day, she writes, and this is after she kind of recounts her entire life, uh, recounts what she has done with her life. She says, we have all known the long loneliness, and we have learned that the only solution is love, and that love comes with community. So in the postscript, she, she further writes, the most significant thing is community. Others say we are not alone anymore. And she says, I disagree. She disagrees with this. She says, but the final word is love. At times it has been in the words of father Zosima, a harsh and dreadful thing. And our very faith in love has been tried through fire. We cannot love unless we love each other and to love. We must know each other. We know him in the breaking of bread, him being God. And we know each other in the breaking of bread and we are not alone anymore. 
Heaven is a banquet and life is a banquet too, even with a crust where there is companionship. So in this, she 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 disagrees with kind of a common sentiment that says that the solution to loneliness, the solution to this this longingness that you feel when you pursue the moral life is just to have community, right? Just have people around you. And that'll kind of make that go away. She says, nope. It's kind of baked in at the at ground level that whenever you love something, there's going to come some kind of sense of longing and sense of unfulfilledness because you always want it more and you're never going to be able to have it as much as you want it. Um, so that's it. There's always kind of the problem of the, one of the great problems of the moral life then is that you never get it as much as you want. There's always kind of this, this lingering loneliness and it's a real problem with persevering, I think, because it would be much easier just to quit. So Day says that there's then a few ways to, um, to, to bear with this. One is, as she says, community. Um, having those who identify that, those who see the moral life and are propelling us forward, that we are able to meet with, they were able to meet um, with one another and to bear it together. Another one she says is prayer, that we offer that loneliness and offer that that tiredness, that fatigueness, that wondering if we can go on-ness. We offer that up to God. Another way is simply by times of proximity to that one that you care about, that one which you are the, the beloved. Um, when she says that we know him in the breaking of bread and we know each other more other in the breaking of bread and we are not alone anymore. I think that she's speaking not only about the way in which we encounter God when we, um, when we take communion, but that when we encounter God, we are also fully able to encounter one another. Um, that there is a, there is a union there of, of the beloved that to put it a little bit more clearly, it's like if you really care about a person and you spend a lot of your time caring about a person, the part of the way that we care about each other well is by being in proximity to one another. It's hard to care about a thing that you don't have any proximity to. And so just being in proximity, I think, eases some of that loneliness and restores some of that uh, that sheer joy of why it is that we do what we do. But, and then another thing, and this is something that Day learns, I think, along her life, is how to pace yourself. She starts off in the 1930s full of zeal and full of piss and vinegar. Maybe some of that didn't really go away. She was pretty feisty till the very end. But um, learning how to moderate and how to pace herself and how to do that, how to have that zeal with knowledge and how to have that zeal over the long haul. So sometimes it takes rest and sometimes it takes pulling back and sometimes it takes um, just being, being forgiving with yourself because we're not able to be zealous all the time. It's exhausting. And uh, God knows that it's exhausting. But the thing that I do want to emphasize here as we, as I get ready to close is that this loneliness is in some sense irresolvable. It's not the thing which can be cured, but it's a pervasive sense that I think will always be a question mark for um, being able to carry on the moral life over the long term. So the trick is then not to um, not to try to bear it alone, but kind of with these resources that day points us to resources of prayer, of union with the beloved, of pacing ourselves, of community. Um, but the other thing that I want to say here is not to try to kill it. Don't try to kill the loneliness because that loneliness, that, that gappiness, that sense of 
uh, distance between what you want and what you've not yet done between what you desire and what is how it's still unfulfilled between wanting to pay attention more to a thing, but yet it's still, uh, there's still a more nest that we haven't quite, that you're never going to be able to fulfill. Um, don't kill that. Don't try to numb that. Don't try to put it away. That's the generative space, which propels our action. That is the generative thing, the itch that keeps us moving forward. Um, because ultimately I think, and day is, day talks about this at length in her book, but I think she's right. Um, that, that those desires ultimately come from God that we might learn to love things well and the world well, that we might ultimately learn how to love God well. So when you feel that, uh, that drag on your perseverance, when you feel that itch, when you feel that deep sense of dissatisfaction and gappiness or the loneliness, as she puts it between where you are and where you would like to be, or this deep sense of dissatisfaction of never being able to devote yourself as much as you would like to just know that that's not going to go away. That's part of the deal. Um, that there are ways to bear it and we bear it well with one another and with prayer and with times with, um, the beloved and with pacing ourselves, but that it's not going anywhere, nor should it, that perhaps loneliness is ultimately a gift, which pulls us forward, um, deeper and deeper into that, which ultimately I think comes from God. All right. That's it for today. Hope everyone has a good um, rest of your week. Pace yourself. Go be with the ones that you care about. Um, and may God open up our care to be more and more expansive. And may you not kill that loneliness. <laughs>